No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country. Produce players and grow and play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony. I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us home to the point. Hello and welcome back to the Trick Back Podcast with BackPageFootball.com. I'm Kevin Coleman and I'm joined by the old gang back again for a new season is Phil Green and Ender Higgins. How are you, lads? How are you doing? Not too form. Not bad, no. I was going to ask um, what have we all been up to over the course of the summer, but I think we've all had uh, had uh, life events. Uh, uh, Phil, I believe you uh, tied the knot at some stage over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I did indeed, yeah. Um, just just before the end of the Premier League season and just before Liverpool lost the Champions League final, I got married, so I had a, an up and down two weeks, but yeah, um, still she still has me, so I'm, I'm doing well. She hasn't got rid of me yet, so happy enough. <laughs> You've laid down the law anyway for, for the for the season ahead. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like we, we, we were actually in Liverpool last weekend as uh, her wedding present to me, so I think she, she knows well enough what's going what it's going to be like now over the next 10 months. <laughs> and Enda, you uh, you escaped Dublin, uh, I heard, which uh, is always a, a good thing in anyone's book. Yes, the glory of Lucan is is behind me after eight years of enjoying the goodness there, and I'm down in Wicklow now, um, staring out over uh, the mountains here. Very philosophical moment altogether, but uh, yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was a long road, but uh, yeah, a great relief, and uh, yeah, very exciting times ahead. So looking forward to it. Mm, good stuff. Um, and then I, of course, turned 30 last week, the big trio. And um, I, I kind of had this moment, I think it was when I was about 21 or two, when Raheem Sterling came on the scene at Liverpool and he kind of come to the realisation that, yeah, your, your, your moment in time or chance is definitely passed at this stage. But uh, I think when you hit 30, that's, there's no going back. It's, uh, it, it's uh, well behind you, any hope of... Uh, a career of ever making it in anything. Yeah, when managers are the even screwing at five aside, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, just no going back. There's no going back. You know? I'm sweating not. just thinking about playing football. You know, so that's yeah, it's over. It's over. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was, uh, I'm still young for a goalkeeper. If if I wanted to have my hand in that, but um, I think my playing days are are numbered. Um, I suppose. I mean, there's so much we could cover since uh, over the past couple of months. All the transfers felt like a, a busier transfer window than usual, especially early on. Um, there's been lots of off-the-field news, um, and we'll try and get into as much of that as possible and uh, talk about some of the big teams in the Premier League and some of the big new signings and fresh faces there. Um, I think we'll touch on, on some of the Irish players that are uh, moving around, and I mean, we could spend two hours trying to cover all of that. Um, we've a new most expensive Irish player ever. Um, we've Gavin Bizzuno between the sticks now in in the Premier League. Josh Cullen is back in the Championship, um, and a whole lot more there. 
lads moving abroad as well from the League of Ireland. So we'll, uh, we'll try and touch on some of that um, and some of the big news points of the week as well. But lads, I think we probably have to start with, uh, with, with where we actually had a bit of football this summer as well. Uh, the Women's Euros, uh, huge tournament. Um, you know, I think the, the the main takeaway from it all was that women's football officially kind of became mainstream. It, it, it shattered all records in terms of attendance and, and, and viewing figures. Um, you know, there was some great games, some great goals throughout the tournament. Um, and even going into it, I, I kind of got the sense that, um, you know, when you go into, say, a World Cup or, or, or a men's European Championships, there's... Um, you know, you've all your season or your your competition previews and your team by teams and all your player analysis content and all that kind of stuff. And it 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 really felt like it kind of took a step up with the women's going into it. Um, and and it felt like you know, it wasn't just I don't know media ticking a box to say we've we've covered it. They were actually putting in a lot of effort and there was a lot of good stuff out there. So I had high hopes going into it, but um, I mean, you know. Taking taking it away and and seeing how much it's done for for the women's game, especially uh, on this side of the world, um, and obviously it was hugely disappointing for for Ireland not to be there. But we are uh, knocking on the door of the World Cup next year, and I think if we do get there, it's going to be absolutely huge for Irish women's football. But um, it does seem to be on the up, regardless, and and, and a hell of a tournament there this summer. Yeah, I think it's a real inflection point for the game in the UK, especially. Uh, I think, as, as you said, it's kind of been a bit of a paradigm shift uh, in kind of this little corner of the world. Um, I think I think it's important, though, to say that it's probably a point, a jumping off point as opposed to a destination on its own. Uh, you see that even from the team releasing that kind of letter today to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak asking for increased funding and, and access for girls for football. Uh, you're you're seeing that it's not a job done just because the 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 elite end of the game have managed to achieve this great thing, which is a wonderful thing for them to have done. And they've been knocking on the door of doing something like this for at least a little while. Um, but as a as a whole piece, as a whole tournament, I have to agree with you, Kev. I thought it was great. Like I know BBC have kind of given it the the big tournament feel over the last couple of tournaments. RT shared the the uh, broadcast with TG Carr for the last World Cup, but took this one on full bore gave it the proper full big one had some really great panelists i mean you if you think about the if you think about the equivalent for the men's team you'll you, like you, very unlikely you get stephen kenny and you definitely wouldn't get as many of the regular players as they had uh, in studio as well as people like lisa Vallon who have been part of the, the furniture for a little while and who is excellent as well uh, but the coverage was was absolutely brilliant i thought i thought it was great to see uh, like some of the regular cast like richie sadler bring himself up to speed like he would with a team from you know Asia or, or, or Africa or South America for a men's tournament that he wasn't familiar with. Um, I presume Richie had to do a little bit of boning up, but he's gotten himself into a position now where it doesn't feel like tokenism. Like you were saying, it's not just a box-ticking exercise. It's it's actual genuine interest, passion, and, and, and knowledge about the game. Um, and I think you only have to look at the amount of great stuff that was put out across a number of different platforms and, and and the way it was spoken about with such kind of knowledge and enthusiasm, I think it was great overall. You mentioned us not being there. I think it's a real pity and a real missed opportunity to not have qualified for a yeah. tournament so close to us. So, like, the World Cup would be great, but it's in Australia and New Zealand, and best will in the world, that's going to be best-case scenario, 6 o'clock in the morning kickoffs. Some of them are probably going to be during the night, uh, which will hurt it. Uh, it'll be great if they get there, absolutely, don't get me wrong. But if it was like a commutable distance for us to go to games, it would have been absolutely massive. Especially, I think, 
with the enthusiasm that has kind of organically built behind our team, kind of not all that related to how the English team have been going, actually. Like, you know, I think I saw a thing today that the English women's rugby team are expecting a boost off the back of the what the soccer team have done. Our own soccer team have just have kind of organically built this through their results and their club profiles. Um, so it, it would have been great to kind of crown it with, a, with as close to a home tournament as we're going to get. But listen, I think the good thing was there was like, you know, a month, six weeks of women's football on television every night on terrestrial TV, attracting good size audiences and getting people familiar with people maybe just beyond the kind of Viv Medema's, the, the Leah Williamson's and stuff like that. I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, what I find interesting um, is the parallels, really, between Ireland and England uh, in terms of, you know, you look at 2017, uh, Mark Sampson was, uh, you know, just being sacked for how he treated the English players. And at the same time, we were hosting a press conference saying that uh, our players were getting no support from John Delaney. Um, And you look at how both of those teams have evolved since then. Um, I also think it's really interesting that you know the improvement and the attention that the WSL has gotten in the last few years has really transferred into how the English team are playing now. Um, I remember watching Sam Kerr play for Perth years ago in Australia, thinking this is probably one of the best players I've ever seen. Um, and then she went to America and then went back to Australia. And I just thought if no European club takes a chance on somebody like that, then their leagues can never evolve. And then eventually she, she signed for Chelsea around the same time that you know Tobin Heath and Christian Press were signing for United and Casey Sony was <clears throat> doing a great job there and it just seemed to all evolve at the same time. Miedema went to Arsenal and that entire league went up, you know, tenfold in terms of the quality and, and the interest in it. And then obviously Sky Sky got involved a couple of seasons ago as well and BT Sport now show weekly uh, female matches. So I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the England team have, res- have responded to that and have improved on the back of that. Um, and I think there's, you know, a lot for Ireland to kind of look at and think, yeah, we can get to that level as well. You know, I mean, Katie McCabe is still one of the best players in the league and obviously we have plenty of other playing <clears throat> across the WSL as well. So if they can improve at the same rate that the English players are improving and obviously we have a fantastic coach now, again, similar to England uh, in terms of, you know, fixing the damage that was done in the past. Uh, I think it's there's a huge positive ahead for uh, women's football really across the board. And, you know, we had such a great tournament and one of the best players in the world and Proteus, you know, was injured before it and, you know, as disappointing as it was for the tournament, it didn't kind of suffer as a result, whereas, you know, in, in the men's game, we tend to focus on who wasn't there rather than who was there in some of these tournaments. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was just fantastic, you know, uh, seeing the whole, whole thing play out and, and obviously the viewing figures that they got and, you know, 89,000 or whatever it was at Wembley was, was great to see and, you know, they really need to push on now and it's already kind of, taking a bit of a blow with, you know, announcing that uh, girls aren't going to be allowed to play football and pee as much as guys, which is bizarre, really, not being able to build in the momentum. That's unfortunately where the UK political issues lie at the moment. But um, just focusing on Ireland, I think there's a lot for us to look forward to in terms of how we can develop as well um, by having players amongst um, the WSL. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's great to see some of these players become household names. You mentioned uh, a couple there and, you know, it's becoming s- such a kind of, um, you know, accepted, you know, it, it, it's been taken seriously. Now. And, and even this week we've seen, um, you know, a kind of a, a bona fide superstar in, in Hedder O'Reilly, um, World Cup winner with America, 230 odd caps, I think, 
come out of retirement, play for Shells now uh, to get a taste of uh, of Champions League football for the first time. Um, and straight away, you know, you've you've uh, you have you know one of the greatest women's players of all time within our own league, and that's another kind of selling point for 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 people who want to get out to the games, get into into the grounds around the country, and, and get a glimpse for um, and kind of again boost the profile of of um, of shells in Europe as well as uh, in our uh, own uh, women's Premier League here. Yeah, I, I suppose the, the, when you mentioned the league, the important thing to remember is like however whatever sort of shape the the men's uh, uh, SSE or Tristy League is in, I mean, it's, you know, tenfold worse for the women in terms of the, the football and pyramid. It doesn't exist in, in, in the men's game. And, I mean, I don't know how far away we are from it in the women's, but, like, they're, they're, it's an amateur league, um, essentially. I think nearly nearly wholesale, not fully, I don't think, but uh, not far off. And, um, and I suppose that's, like, in tandem with the national team growing in profile, it's it, it's the same sort, it's a similar sort of challenge that we have for the men's team, obviously, just from a lower base. But, um, it, it is something I suppose is going to need attention. And I think it's great to see like TG Carrier carrying 10 games from the from the uh WNL this year. Uh, that's going to be massive, I think. Just getting them on free to wear TV for people to see it, uh, I think, will be yeah. really important, especially because we still have a decent representation from uh, our national league in the national squad, kind of unlike the men's. So, um, I, I think it probably is the next area of focus, as because as end outlined, there's been really good work put into the, the the elite end of the national side, with obviously a great coach and um, and a really good generation of players. But I suppose the next thing now, if we could, um, if there can be a little little bit of focus, Sean, on the league to kind of give people a bit of a pathway, even if it's you know they stay in the league until they're like like in, in men's sense, they stay in the league until they're in their early twenties and they get they go or whatever the option is, but that there is something a little feasible. Uh, beyond kind of two or three teams that really seem to be the kind of the bulk suppliers, um, but I, th- I think that's probably the next step for us. Um, but you know, it's 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 a work in progress, and they're starting from a, from a pretty low base. I mean, it's only you know whatever six and a half years ago that the national team had to host a press conference to talk about getting changed in airport toilets. So you know, we're probably going at a decent clip, but um, it, it you know still a still definite work to do and probably an area of focus not a not a criticism just you know something to to focus on I suppose going on yeah it'll be interesting to see if it transfers over to the Champions League because it's still very heavily weighted towards Barcelona Leon in terms of that gap in quality to everybody else um and you know that's fine and obviously they play incredible Champions League finals all the time and they have the best players in the world and and and, and all of that but I think if the women's game is really going to take that next step now, I think certainly there has to be a leveling out of quality across the European games. Because, I mean, you even see quarterfinals, semifinals of women's Champions League games have like seven, eight in aggregates. And that's just, yeah. that's the type of stuff that, you know, is easy to ridicule for the casual football watcher. Because that just, you know, I was going to say it doesn't happen in the men's game, but Bayern beat Barcelona 8-2. So who knows? But uh um, you know, rarely does it happen where it's, it's quite common in, in, in the women's game. So I think, you know, that's that would be my only concern, uh, you know, on a, on a kind of broad level of, of, you know, watching all these great European players uh, play so well for their countries. Uh, you know, uh, Leon and, and Barcelona in particular still seem to hoover up a lot of the, you know, the real top talent and then everybody else is kind of fighting for the rest. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next kind of two to three years. Welcome 
It's been a very busy summer in the Premier League um, and I mean we've seen Spurs uh, splash the cash very early on Arsenal have uh, been busy in the market as well um, Chelsea are starting to ramp up things uh, on their side I see they've signed Mark Cucurella uh, earlier today um, from Brighton um, I suppose if you just start from the from the top two and you know, two clubs we've obviously seen already last weekend in the Community Shields um, Liverpool and Manchester City and I am very intrigued to see them this season. Um, I mean, it's it's not that they've gone through huge changes, maybe City more so than Liverpool, but it's probably the first time in a long time that both have made rather large adjustments in that, you know, the system is going to be different. Um, you know, the style of play might be slightly different. Certainly in, in City's uh, case with, with, with Holland coming over, you know, into a number nine role that didn't exist at City last season or the season before, you know, some a role that they were happy to plug, and um, pretty much anyone in there and, and do a job. So it's going to be such a huge different focal point for them, um, and similarly for Liverpool with uh, with Darwin Nunez. I mean, I imagine it'll be slightly less of a kind of a difference if you want to compare the you know the front three that we're so familiar with to this front three, but. Um, I mean, it, it is fascinating to, to to want to watch, and I think you know, probably coming out of the Community Shield, a lot of people were probably saying, you know, will Holland take time to adjust? You know, he had those couple of misses. Similarly for Nunes, he I mean there was there was uh, compilations going around of his training ground misses uh, a couple of weeks back, and and now he's uh, he's ready to to shoot the lights out all of a sudden. Yeah, but, I'm not um, responsible for any of those, by the way. Just before you bring <laughs> up centre backs height or bald managers or whatever, I'm not responsible for any. Darwin Nobody Nunes check Ender's likes. Don't don't, don't yeah. go into Ender's Twitter account and check his likes. All doesn't, right, doesn't matter what, what I like. I log into LinkedIn. I log into LinkedIn, and Phil Green is like every bloody Liverpool <laughs> post phone, you know. So yeah, I'll don't, go do, I'll go do don't get on to likes. Just said, I. I actually defended Darwin Nunes in the WhatsApp group and Kevin still came chiming back like a dagger. And then I got abuse about short centre-backs and all that. I defended the guy in the WhatsApp group, but that's, that's all I'll say. I took no pleasure in seeing him stink the gaff out in training in Australia or whatever. I felt sorry for him, but it, it all went fine in the end, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I think we know who's behind. Was it Bruno Eight for Life, or whatever that uh, anonymous Twitter account is <laughs> over there? <laughs> yeah. But uh, but Phil, what, what what do you make of uh, the the kind of the change in tech really from Liverpool and City? Um, like obviously it seems like it's going to be a, another one-two horse race. Um, but is is there going to be an adjustment period there that you know there might be uh, points to be taken off? A little bit of a, a struggle early on for for the two new guys. I'm really, really interested to see how much Pep adjusts to Haaland and how much he expects Haaland to adjust to Pep. Um, obviously, we know that within like a, kind of a, a fluid system, he's Pep is pretty dogmatic at the at the back end of it in terms of how how he does like to approach and play. Uh, and there are certain things within that that Haaland fit really naturally into, and then certain things that maybe he wouldn't fit as naturally in. So I'm I'm really interested to see how much he's going to be willing to shift things around to just kind of suit that fellow when everything else is still kind of pointed in in one kind of direction. Because it's not like the whole team has been shifted on its axis to specifically fit him, if that makes sense. Um, listen, I think like what happened to him in the, in the Community Shield, 
Like, you know, it's like it's like Guardiola said, he's like he's gonna score that chance that he had at the end like ten times out of ten. <laughs> like he's like that, that's not a problem. I suppose it's a little bit more of a problem is like how relatively peripheral he was. I know he had that other kind of he had that those kind of two cha- two chances in quick succession. One of them was a chance, one was kind of a half chance in the uh in the first half. Um, but other than that, he was kind of peripheral um, to it. Like, there was a betting in period, I think, for sure, for, for Haaland. And it does seem like he's going to be given the keys right away, whereas it wouldn't be a massive surprise if Nunes isn't, um, just because they do have Firmino already there. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if Nunes is doing kind of mm-hmm. 30 minutes for a couple of games um, and then and then maybe ease into a start or something. Whereas it looks like Haaland from is going to be the man from the off, and that might pose a, a few little problems. The only thing is they've had him for quite a while, so the, like Guardiola would have been working on this a, a solution to this issue from the start of preseason. So like that'll help. Um, but I I do think there will be at least to our eyes probably something different about both sides. Um, when when those new forwards are in. Um, I think Liverpool in general were trying to do something a little different last season. At the start of last season, when Elliot started kind of in the right of midfield, he started quite high, kind of, to, and um, almost in the areas Salah had previously played in. And Trent has often started to pop up in those uh, sort of areas. Second half of last season, and often on Saturday, he was the furthest player forward. So I think this might feed into where they were going generally. This Nunes signing, but it does feel like their both sides are sort of moving away from the first teams of their respective managers era, or maybe even their second team, but the kind of the epoch of this kind of 90 plus point duel that they've had, it does feel like the Nunes and Haaland yeah. signings might be spearheading the next generation along. And um, so it'll be interesting to see if there's a dip in standards there. And by that, I mean, like, do we, do you come below 90 points to win the league? And um, I don't see it personally. I say it'll probably still be a 90 plus point season, but there might be a few little teething problems. And maybe that way, it's helpful for Haaland that he's not going to the World Cup. He has six weeks where he can have a rest. He can do a bit of work at home with Pep, with whoever, and really kind of get into the swing of things. And um, so, yeah, I, I think there probably is going to be a little bit of a, a little bit of teething problems on both sides. And um, there's not going to be that much room for error. There's obviously going to be a lot of attention on them. I do think they're going to score a lot of goals against like the bottom twelve. Like it feels like both of them could be set up to score a couple against the weaker sides that might pad things out a little bit for them. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It's it is it's really hard to call. I think between those two, where like who, who may hit the ground running and who might struggle, I can't really make my mind up on it. Yeah, I, I kind of felt <clears throat> a bit awkward almost watching City at the weekend. I don't know. It was just bizarre to see a team that's you know usually has this fluid and you know exotic front six where there's no number nine or whatever. And then all of a sudden you have this big robotic Norwegian lumberjack just constantly running through the centre. And it was almost like they didn't really realize how to find them or how to play them in or, or, or really what to do. And and then again, starting Grealish on the wing instead of Foden when, you know, Foden changed the game as far as I'm concerned for City when he came on. And even Alvarez, when he came on, he looked far more natural in that City lineup. So it was all a bit strange and uncomfortable, but I think it'll it's something that will correct itself over time. The thing that I'm still most surprised about with City is the fact that they've let Raheem Sterling go. I, I like to me, that just makes no sense. I thought Mara's mm. finished last season really poorly. Even that that kind of last game against Villa, he just constantly kept cutting in on his left foot, swinging in the cross to nobody. And then as soon as Sterling came on, he went around the outside, created the first goal, and that really you know won City the title. And he's been the most prolific player under Pep, apart from 
Aguero, which is, you know, a staggering stat, really. So uh, I just can't understand why they'd give up such an attacking threat in order to, you know, shoehorn Grealish or even Foden into a kind of a, a winger in a front three when, when both are obviously more comfortable centrally. So, so that surprised me a bit. I think Zinchenko was, you know, one of the best backup players in the league last season as well and was very influential in that comeback against Villa. So again, to me, that's that's quite an underrated loss. Uh, you know, they brought in Phillips and Alvarez and Haaland. I think they'll, they'll all do fine, but it's it's the first time I'm not really sure about City in the last few years in terms of, you know, can they really adjust over time and all do what Pep wants them to do? He You know, he, he did such a good job of building this squad where everybody knew exactly what he wanted, and I kind of feel like that's potentially being disjointed a bit. I mean, even like, does Phillips mean now you have two sitting when Rodri and Phillips, which would totally change the dynamic of, you know, then you don't have Bernardo and Kevin De Bruyne playing with each other, which has been so successful the last two to three seasons. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. And again, there's still a month left in the transfer window. So who who knows what they might do Mm. in in that time. But I think if, you know, were to take anything from the community shield, I think it's still business as usual for Liverpool in terms of how they can just, flick that switch I thought especially the first half hour I just thought they were phenomenal really in terms of that pace and intensity that we're we're so used to and you know they get a lot of stick in pre-season but you look at the way Jurgen Klopp has treated all of his pre-seasons at Liverpool and then that's what he does it's these 30 minutes bursts of 11 change 11 change 11 so you know he's so comfortable and, and knows this player so well now that you just can't really judge anything from pre-season you can just rock up to, at the community shield and still play as well as they did um, so I think Liverpool are really going to have a, a good season. And, and I think it was an important game for Nunes. Not that I would have cried personally if I won a community shield, but uh, <laughs> each each to their own. But, uh, you know, it was that weird, almost Lukaku-esque moment where you had the kind of crap header that wins the penalty, but then you score the goal. And I think he will have those moments where it is a bit awkward and the ball might hit off his heel or something. But then, you know, he'll belt one in from 20 yards and, you know, take off his shirt and I'll be right with the world again. But uh, he's uh, he's a wild card for sure. And um, certainly something different from Klopp in terms of, you know, you, you look at what Klopp and Edwards have built at Liverpool. It's always that kind of 10 to 40 million pound player where they've always been at their best and at their most comfortable. And they've only really gone outside that bracket three times with Keita, who's, you know, been okay. And then obviously the other two have been fantastic and Alisson and Van Dijk. So it's, it's a huge statement and, and, uh, commitment um, to Nunes that that they forked up the cash so quickly uh, based on really what's one prolific, prolific season in, in Portugal. But uh, I think, you know, the signs look pretty positive overall uh, and his movement seems fantastic, even in pre-season when he was missing those chances. Yeah, his movement is fantastic from what I've seen so far. Um, it's just getting on the end of those chances. You mentioned you mentioned Zinchenko there and this is something I, w- I wanted to bring up Obviously, they've sold Sinjenko to uh, to Arsenal. They've lost out on on Cucurella now to uh, to Chelsea. They've no left footed left back, which, I mean, we've seen Pep do a lot of strange things. We know how good Joao Cancelo is, and obviously, like you mentioned, there there is a month left. Like there's plenty of time left to get someone in, but it does feel like one of those uh, kind of oh, that's a, a bold strategy, Cotton kind of moments that they're going into a new season without someone who is kind of an out-and-out left-sided player. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, you know, Laporte, Stones, um, even Ruben Diaz has, has been struggling with a couple of injuries. Nathan Ake looks like he's going to play some part. He um, was also linked with Chelsea and that kind of fell through. So he's going to, uh, it looks like, start the season at City. 
Um, it, it, does it feel like they're, they're they're to be got at? I mean, you know, when you look at the depth compared to say uh, Liverpool, I think Klopp came out and said he has four of the best centre backs in the world now. Um, when they're all fit, is is fantastic, and and I mean, three out of the four have have been a hundred percent fit from last season. Gomez obviously signed a new deal, uh, and then they've they've you know two pretty decent left backs, to Trent on the right hand side, and a youngster backing him up. So. I mean, when you compare defensively, it does feel like City are a little bit weak going into the going into the season. Firstly, I don't like how Enda and now Kev have come out shooting for City when, in the back of my head, I was ready to do the same. So that leads me to believe that if all three of us are going against them, that they're going to win well, the league with fucking 114 points. Yeah, uh, but on your point, Kev, I do agree with it. And um, like there, there was an interesting thing. I, I think it was over the summer. I read it was like m- maybe the fact that a couple of seasons ago you could have said that Liverpool had near enough the best eleven in the league, but that City had the best eighteen or twenty three. I don't know if that's true anymore about City. Um, in a couple of positions, in a couple of ways. Um, and obviously, uh, as Andy said, Calvin Phillips has come in to kind of help the midfield issue a little bit. Um, but like they very obviously have a really good team. Like they have a good eleven. They have a good maybe. 13, 14, 15, and then it starts to get a little patchy. And in a season of five subs, um, maybe that starts to get, which sounds a bit mad because, you know, bottomless, endless resources, and somehow they're a little exposed. But um, I think you're right. Like, there's always been an element, and it's not not always borne out, but there's always been a sense that you could kind of get at them defensively if you kind of got up and at them. Um, and, you know, they've <laughs> they've won they've won leagues with 90 plus points, so you know, how often have they been gotten that? But still, it, it, they've never inspired loads and loads of confidence. Um, apart from maybe Diaz in that kind of first season he had, he was pretty it was pretty impressive, but he definitely struggled last year. So there is def- a definite sense that they, they can be got at. And they are probably only an injury or two away from a really sticky situation. Um, whereas if you look at the, 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 the kind of depth that Liverpool have built now, as you said, they've got they've got really good options nearly, ac- nearly across the pitch, not entirely, but they've got pretty good options like right the way across. Um, and it's evident, like City are, we're looking for Couturella, who's obviously after going to Chelsea or near enough. And they're also in, I don't know his name, they're also in for a centre half from Leipzig, I think, um, or maybe the, one of the other Orbi teams. But anyway, they're in for a centre half as well. And it just doesn't strike me as an overly pep move to be doing, you know, two days before the season starts, to still be kind of fumbling around looking to spend 50 more million on a defender. Um, especially in this season when rhythm is going to be really important. It doesn't strike me that they're entirely happy with how things are going or where they are with, with their squad depth in a year where that's going to be really put to the test. So maybe sneakily, there are a few things below the surface, below that first kind of first choice, maybe 13 or 14, where City could be a little vulnerable. Yeah, I suppose there's still a month to go, but yeah, listen, we'll see. But uh the other thing is their first four fixtures um, before they uh, uh, look look really really kind of handy. So um, <laughs> they win those, they get a couple of transfers in before the end of August, and I, I think they could be in okay shape. But certainly, all doesn't seem as well with City as we're used to coming into the new season. And uh, well, you've already mentioned uh, short centre backs, so uh, I, I don't want any attacks. <laughs> Uh, on our side, but um, Cannavaro is I mean, it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> some of the world's best. 
Um, I'm happy to open the floor to you to, to, to kind of guide us through what exactly is going on at Manchester United because it feels like everything has changed, but at the same time, very little has changed when you look at this whole Frankie de Jong saga, which, you know, it, it makes the Jane Sancho thing look uh, look like a, a, a walk in the park, considering how much this has been dragged out with, uh, with his salary issues and, and, and Barcelona dragging their heels as well. Um, I mean... It's just been an absolutely bizarre summer, and 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 it's getting even stranger now with with Dean Henderson's comments, um, this Cristiano Ronaldo thing, where it looks like um, he's at loggerheads with 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 Ten Hag. But I suppose no one really wants to come out and just say, do, do you know, what? just just get lost, because I think everyone would be happy to to break ties there at the moment. Um, how, how are you feeling going into going into this season? Uh, yeah, the tricky Reds. <laughs> What to say about the tricky reds? Uh, (laughs) It's been strange because, you know, obviously, you know, there there are a few people who think Ten Hag's a bit of a bluffer, all right, and all all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm wearing the same tan suit for two weeks around Carrington, didn't do him any favours. But uh, (laughs) but, uh, I think, you know, just from a pure coaching perspective, I think a a lot of people feel... um, that there has been a big improvement. I, I, I was talking to somebody who knows more about those things than me, and they said Ten Hag had his his people arrive at Carrington a few weeks before he started and, and really sorted the place out, and it it kind of created a, a, a good platform for them to start implementing things the way he wanted to, and, and, and that, you know, even before they jetted off for Australia, there was already a huge change in, in terms of the tenacity and training and, and and what they're trying to do and and you know an actual plan for once which is something we're not used to for the past decade but then on the other hand the off the stuff pitch is probably about as dramatic as it gets even by our standards it's kind of some sort of you know fucked up real housewives of LA bollocks going on or something like that with uh <laughs> you know the Cristiano thing the Diong thing you know the potentially now this you know a kid playing in Austria probably is going to go to PSG or Chelsea or something like that. It's just all been a bit bizarre. But um, I, I think that was always going to be his biggest challenge. Anyways, I had no kind of concerns in terms of his coaching ability or, or even his personality. I think, you know, uh, anybody who knows anything about Ten Hag, and there was a great documentary on him on, on Sky Sports recently. I don't know if you saw it, but, uh, you know, he's, he's never really not failed to to improve teams that, um, you know, he's taken over. And I think that's still one of the biggest things that needed to happen at United after the chaos of Wreck-It Ralph and, you know, Oli leaving such a disjointed squad. Um, so I, I think his first remit was to absolutely, you know, improve the squad 15 to 20% in terms of what they're doing on the pitch and, and what they're doing behind the scenes. And all reports are that's potentially the case, but then you you look at the other side and think his his entire apparently his entire game plan is revolved around getting Frankie De Jong and you know at this stage I might as well you know ping Angelina Jolie a text saying is she free to visit Rathnew this <laughs> evening um, because I think as soon as he got on the plane to America I just think that caused so many problems in terms of dealing with Barcelona the players intention dragging it out and listen it might still happen who knows but every indication at the moment seems like it's not going to and then you're still left short in a position that was probably the most important one that needs to be addressed this season um but uh chris winterburn somebody we've had on before said that uh if we were dortmund or monaco you would just bring in zidane iqbal for the season and and you know 
let him go loose as the ball playing midfielder that were desperate for. But because it's United, you know, that just, just doesn't seem to happen. And there's always this clamour to either play what's there and who's established or else go off and find a nice, shiny new signing, which we're trying to do, but it doesn't seem to be happening in that position at the moment. So it, it's making me more nervous, obviously, going into the new season. And, um, you know, I'll be over there on Sunday and, and we'll see what the atmosphere is like. But there's still that hint of optimism that you have to have going into a new season considering you know that you know Malassia looks really strong at left back I think Ericsson's going to be a great signing and you know Martinez could be anything really it's a bit of a punt at that price considering I think we're paying you know 66 grand per appearance sober not as part of the the 10 million add-ons that Ajax are getting so uh, it's probably going to be about 65 million euro deal overall which is you know a lot of cash for you know a centre-back who's vertically challenged like myself um <laughs> but uh, uh he you know he was very impressive and the friendly I thought at the weekend against Vallecano especially on the ball uh and he's played very well in the Champions League and obviously in in the Netherlands for Ajax and, and Ten Hag seems to have a, a huge amount of faith in him so for me that's that's enough for a new signing in terms of obviously giving them a clean slate and seeing how they perform but you know you're looking at Nunes you're looking at Haaland you're even Looking at Samaka at West Ham, Chris Wood at Newcastle, I think they'll all be kind of looking forward to having a run on them on, uh, you know, on a cross or corner. But uh, we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I'm still cautiously optimistic that things will be better because I just think they couldn't get much worse than they got under Ranić at the end of last season, where you know it wasn't even a football team anymore; it was just something utterly horrific and bizarre. So. Um, uh, I think think we'll be competitive and, and, you know, anything above that, we'll have to wait and yeah. see. But, uh, yeah, it's been the usual chaos, I suppose. Enda, do you see uh, midfield as being enough of a problem that if the young wasn't to come, they need somebody? Or do you think it's a sign of kind of an improved sense of identity in a team that they're prepared to only go for their main target? Like, do you think, is, is it going to turn out to be a fuck-up or is it actually a good thing? that they're willing to be principled in the way that maybe some of the better run teams have been. Yeah, I, I think it's strange. Like a lot of people say a, a good run football club would always have their plan B and they would have gone yeah. from an hour. But it, like Klopp never goes for his plan B. You know, when you ended up having to apologise to Southampton for, you know, approaching Virgil van Dijk in the summer, you know, you didn't go out and sign bloody, you know, Tarkowski or somebody, you know, like you just pursued him and, and that was the plan, you know. Um, and he stood by the fact that that was the player he wanted. Uh, now I'm not saying Frankie joins in January or anything like that, but I'm just giving an example of other other managers have stood by their guns and said, right, if I don't get my first choice, I'm just going to have to work with what I have. So, you know, there's no point bringing in a, a Yuri Tillemans or even a Ruben Neves, who I really like, if that's not what the manager wants and, and they don't play the way he wants to play. But on the other hand, if he doesn't get him, um, he needs to somehow you know, improve what's there and you're not going to get, you know, a Frankie Young type of performance out of McTominay, you know, so do you stick with Garner and bring him in? Do you, you know, take a big chance on Iqbal or Hannibal Medjury? You could. Uh, and I think they, the two younger lads, definitely possess similar qualities in terms of being able to pick up the ball from centre-backs and, and, and start play and, and beat a high press. But it requires a lot of patience from fans to be able to do that. But on the other hand, because things couldn't get any worse anyways in terms of the performances we saw at the end of last season, I'd be okay with, you know, 
throwing in one of the younger guys. And I suppose that's the slightly concerning part in uh, pre-season that McTominay and Fred still seem to be the go-to partnership when starting at least. And the other guys kind of got to run, you know, later in the game. So uh, I still think he seems to be pinning all his hopes on a player who doesn't seem to enthused about joining the club and that's that's a bit of a risk for a manager but uh, I'm okay with it for now and is there any chance that Martinez plugs a hole in midfield I, I, I thought so actually because he he played midfield when he first joined Ajax but the problem is uh, Ten Hag said last was it January of last year uh, he was asked about Blind and Martinez and why they don't play in midfield anymore, and he said they can't. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> okay, so no. So right, so, no. <laughs> so like, <laughs> well, he, he said something more conference. polite than that. They, they don't have the. And didn't they, he they, play fucking Frankie as a centre back then, or Frank, whatever he's called? Didn't he play him as De Jong as a centre back with Ajax? So he won't play anyone no, anywhere. No, I think he was always a, he was always a midfielder. I think. Maybe he he filled in a couple of times. I think he was pretty much always a midfielder. But uh, no, I think to clarify that quote, he said something like they don't have the engine or, or the, the energy or something. But same thing, basically said they can't do it, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> when we were first linked with him, I thought, oh, maybe that's his, you know, butcher number six there. That could work, yeah. And then then somebody brought those quotes up and I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's why that happens. Which I suppose raised the question, why didn't he bring in Alvarez, who was his number six uh, at Ajax and who probably would have been, you know, one of the cheapest players you could have gotten there. Um, but um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, who the what the partnership is. I suppose you know he's made Maguire captain. You know, where does Varane sit then? Where does Lindelof sit? I mean, I suppose if Varane keeps getting injured, it won't be a problem. But that's that's another potentially interesting side story that might develop because you'd imagine you'd have to be starting your new centre back relatively quickly uh, at that price. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, and then I thought maybe. He'll go for a kind of a three-four-three type of situation, and Martinez maybe could be his his left-sided centre back or something like that, and then you have more cover and, and you could play maybe two of the the weaker midfielders and carry them a little bit. But uh, again, everything in preseason suggests kind of like this more four-two-three-one approach that we've kind of been overkilled with since since the days of Van Hal, really. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll just have to see how it goes. But I've I have no predictions for you know this season. I just just don't um, don't kill us to death like they did at the end of last season, and, and things will be better. In terms of the chasing pack, then lads, and I was trying to think of um, some kind of spicy hot takes for the season ahead in terms of predictions, and uh, you might disagree with the with the spiciness of this particular one. But um, I was looking at Spurs, and I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that they'll be neck and neck with Liverpool and City, at least until the World Cup break. Um, I mean, I like what business they've done there. I like their manager. It's odd to say that Spurs and Antonio Conte, that combination has probably the most settled situation out of, say, Arsenal, Chelsea, United, Um, you know, considering how, um, you know, Conte tends to be a kind of a one two season wonder but they do seem very settled the players they've added Richarlison is Busuma obviously you know two fantastic players Premier League experience in addition to their to their starting 11 so that's my spicy take really was that I was thinking you know could Spurs maybe maybe potentially lead the league heading into the, into the World Cup break I mean you know I wouldn't be surprised is that spicy Phil are you 
or is it a, a bit lukewarm for your for your feeling? No, well, I I I thought you were going to say that they were going going to come third, and I was going to ask you like what sort of blandness were you serving up? But I think I think it's spicy enough <laughs> to say that they could lead the league until November. I think that's pretty spicy. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I certainly think that they're um, like you said, they're like Conte has got his hooks into them, made them puke up all over South Korea. Um, he certainly has seemed to kind of rally them a good bit. And like you, I, I, I was impressed with their business until I thought about it a lot. And then I thought, okay, it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad business. I just don't know if Yves Basuma, Richarlison, and even Perisic are enough to bridge the gap to Manchester City and Liverpool over 38 games. So they might well be well, in the mix, like you said, yeah. up until kind of November time. And I'm not saying you're, you're saying they're going to win the league, but I, 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 I can see them having a good start. Um, I just I don't know if they've moved the dial quite enough um, to bridge what is a really big gap, and it's not. It wouldn't be a failure if they don't bridge it. Um, and I think one thing that also goes against them is England's lion, uh, Harry Kane, will surely be minding himself for uh, the first portion of the campaign, so he can pour his heart and soul into winning another golden boot in Qatar. Um, so I don't think that works necessarily in their favour. Other than that, like uh, obviously they've got a good smatter of their players gone to the World Cup, but I think he's probably the one that I'd be most worried about, just in terms of. He will definitely have that in his sights, um, but I, I think there's every chance they start quite strong. Um, there, I think they're they're probably there's a chance for them to establish themselves as a bridge between the top two and the kind of chasing pack, and maybe separate themselves from from those other teams. I don't think it'll be as close a run of thing for them to be in the Champions League places, for example, as it was last year. Um, but and I, I wouldn't be shocked if they lead the league at the break. But I just I don't think they have enough in them to bridge the gap, and I think it's probably more likely that there's some epic sort of fucking row and falling out, and Conte's gone by this time next year than than winning the league. Speaking of spicy, I suppose I mean they were linked with Zaniolo as a as a wing back during the week. So <laughs> if if that happens, then you know I'm all in on on Conte's exotic <laughs> dreams of what a wing back needs to be because I, I think you know Zaniolo's. A, a, you know, one of the best players in Serie A, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, a bit mixed on, on Spurs. I, I thought initially it, it looked like fantastic business, what they were doing. It all kind of made sense. But then they'd gotten so much right towards the end of last season in terms of, you know, the balance between Ben Decor and Hoiberg in midfield. Where does Basuma fit into that now, or is he a backup? Um the wing-backs were playing really well. Now they brought in Perisic. Uh, the front three, Kulisevsky, Son and Kane were playing great. But now Richarlison. So there's almost a danger of setting the balance, that kind of perfect balance, really, that he started to find towards the end of last season where everybody had their perfect role in that team and it all made sense. And now he's kind of potentially having to shoehorn these new signings in. But again, there's nothing wrong with having a good squad and, and, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I think Spurs... Their squad looks pretty strong as it was in terms of you know the backup players they have apart from maybe not having um, a backup to Harry Kane as number nine and is is that what Richarlison's brought in in for maybe but it's quite an expensive backup if so but uh, yeah I think you know predicting that they they could be up there halfway through the season isn't isn't impossible um, but you're only one or two bad performances away from you know Conte's wig blown and slid and. Uh, <laughs> You just don't know what will happen after that, you know. But uh, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, like some people find the whole run them into the ground until they're puking their guts up thing in preseason exotic, but I just think it's kind of bit fucking stupid, to be honest. Um, <laughs> considering <laughs> it's a pretty... There's a lot of fixtures to be played before the World Cup, you know, so... Uh, just give them um, inhalers and caffeine. Yeah, and yeah, exactly, you know. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Um, well, Conte has history too, you know, with the old uh, <laughs> That's uh, true, medical... Yeah. <laughs> I think he's got his own guys in the case, you know. Um, you know, it was funny how Ian Pazuma got off on his uh, allegations a week after signing. I just had this vision of good fellas, you know, when they meet Henry outside the court <laughs> and they're all embracing him, you know. I just thought, yeah, that's Conte's guys there, you know. Eves, we've got this, you know, do the nod to the judge, you know, all that kind of thing. But uh, probably just coincidence, probably just coincidence. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I think Spurs, definitely the team, I think, you know, you'll be watching every week just because, obviously, Conte's box office on his own anyways, and it is a really, really strong squad now. So uh, they played a lot of good football last season. So, uh, yeah, they're my prediction for third, which is quite boring and plain, but... Uh, um yeah them potentially being top by december is, is a bit more interesting to think about first i thought you treat your bollocks if you drive on excuse <laughs> me this is live the irish lads then and i mean i'll be here to the cows come home listening out all the all the transfers that have happened um you know you've we've had a bunch of league of ireland guys go to to league one in the championship there, there's a uh, and further afield, of course, we've uh, we had Liam Kerrigan obviously go to to, to Lake Como, and having been in Lake Como a couple of months back, I do not blame him swapping the UCD bowl for uh, for <laughs> for Northern Italy one base. Um, bunch of loans. I mean, Troy Paris gone down to the Championship. Um, Toyo Adoramola from from Palace has gone to Coventry. Um, focus on some of the big ones, and Nathan Collins, obviously. Probably, you know, coming into the into the summer, we were looking at a situation at Burnley. We probably pretty much settled on that he is the real deal. Um, you know, he's got he is a, a top half of the Premier League caliber player. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I mean, scored one of the great Irish goals for a defender, not with his head when uh, when he uh, stormed through the Ukrainian midfield uh, a couple of months back, but. Wolves probably wouldn't have been on the top of my list if I was looking at potential suitors for Collins. But when it happened, it started to make a lot of sense. You have a back three, you have a, a kind of a team that set up um, in his style of play. There was a gap for him. I think Roman Sykes left on a free transfer, so there, there was a role available to him. And, you know, when it did happen, it does make a lot of sense. And he became Ireland's most expensive player. And I think... You know, is it too early to say that Wolves is a potential stepping stone? But it, it is a pretty decent signing because you'd imagine Wolves again will will be there thereabouts mid table, maybe pushing in a, a little bit higher. But um, I mean, they they are very much a side that is based on that back three, uh, and now they have a player who is very comfortable in the back three, which will obviously help the Irish national team. And 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 Collins staying in the Premier League obviously is uh, is great news for everyone in terms of lifting his profile. And still only was he twenty twenty one. Um, a good Kildare man, Phil. Um, not just a Kildare man, Kevin. Not just a Kildare man, a Leakslip man. Oh, of course. Sorry, sorry. How, yeah. how could I forget? Yeah, I've mentioned enough. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think it's it's a great move for him first and foremost. Um, like you said, Wolves, what like wasn't they weren't a profile of team I was necessarily thinking of. 
where, to where he might land. But I think that's also probably because I don't tend to think of Wolves signing anyone who isn't Portuguese. Um, but like like you said, an established Premier League team, probably the way things are going, maybe marooned a little bit in mid-table. But that's not a bad thing, I don't think, for Nathan Collins. Like you said, he's only 21. Um, he didn't start. He did, like He was barely deep into the season before he got into the Burnley team. So it's been a relatively meteoric meteoric rise from Stoke to Burnley's bench and not making squads to starting to now moving. And you'd presume for that sort of fee, going to be a pretty regular feature for a, a pretty stable Premier League team. So I think it's probably the right sort of move for him as opposed to going somewhere maybe a little more high profile like a Leicester or Wolves and not being able to get in or sorry, Leicester or West Ham and not being able to get into a team more regularly. I think what suits our purpose as a national team is for him to play as often as he can in the Premier League. I think he'll do that at Wolves. Like you said, the formation suits him down to the ground. Sice's role in the team had been a little bit of stuff out from the back, so he's going to get to, I presume he's going to have a little bit of responsibility that way as well. Um, so I'm, I'm really positive about the move from him. And uh, yeah, obviously the most expensive thing to come out of the league slip since Guinness. So um, fair play to him. I, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's holding up his end of the bargain on the town pretty well. Um, and yeah, like I, 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 like all Irish fans, I presume we're like we're going to be giving Wolves increased attention that they haven't had since they had Kevin Doyle and Kevin Foley and and the likes a couple of years ago under Mick. Yeah, it looks great from. I mean, if you were to rock up at any away ground with a back three of Cody, Collins, and Kilman, I mean that's pretty formidable. I think. Um, obviously, you know, Semedo at right wing back being a complete asshat probably puts all that <laughs> at risk, but. Uh, you know, uh, that aside, I think it it's, it's, looks like a really, really good move. He'll play every week. He won't have that kind of scrutiny, again, that a top six or top eight side might have. But again, Wolves, uh, you know, they, they played really, really good football last season. I felt very underrated. Um, I, I feel like we, we still kind of uh, associate them with the kind of uh, the Santos ball that was quite quite a slog, really. But they actually played a lot better football than that last season. Uh, with the new manager, and I, I felt he was he was should have been you know one of the managers of the season really. Um, come the end of it, so uh, yeah, I think it's 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 a really strong move. I, you know, I've been interested in Collins since United were linked with him at Stoke, and um, hoped that maybe one day somebody would be smart enough to to bring him to the theatre. Uh, and then he started playing well, and Burnley signed him. And uh, once he came in last season, when Burnley were really really struggling, and that was when you know. All hope was gone for them. He was one of the players who gave them a bit of hope again. He played really, really well when he came in, and I, that's obviously what's led to to a Premier League club taking taking that risk with him. But um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he plays. It's just everything about him suggests that kind of modern centre back that Ireland have been crying out for for a very long time, and seems to have a lot of confidence as well, which is obviously very important. And um, yeah, I think it's it's a great move. One that was obviously like both he was a bit strange at the start because you know we didn't really associate Wolves with him when we were kind of talking about where he could potentially go. Um, I thought potentially even Leicester or Everton, a club like that, a bit more established. But, you know, Wolves have been around the Premier League the last few years and played very well and been a very tough side to play against. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he plays and hopefully he plays every week. And, and it can only be good from, from an Ireland perspective that, you know, we're kind of have these players in the spotlight again when for years they were kind of scraping the barrel in terms of either, you know, Premier League subs or, you know, guys who could barely get a game in the in the Champions League. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see how he plays. I love him with all my heart. 
Um, I absolutely love Gavin Bazuno. I think any Irish mother would be delighted to get a Gavin Bazuno in the door along with their daughter. He is that type of character. But I am also a little bit scared of his situation at Southampton. It feels like a situation there that just could explode at any second. And, you know, it would break my heart for all that to turn around and send him back down to the championship next season or something. Or for Alf Hasselhudnell to to get the sack. But I've absolutely no doubt in my mind that he's absolutely going to knock it out of the park. He's going to be a busy man, obviously, but I think he's going to knock it out of the park. And I think, you know, everything we know about him from from the Irish national team, you know, his calmness under his pressure, uh, his leadership, his ability with the ball, but above all else is his shot-stopping ability. And I can just imagine there's going to be a highlight reel of Gavin Bazuno saves come the end of the season. He already had one in, in pre-season that looked absolutely fantastic. But I think I'm, I'm excited for him, but I'm scared at the same time. Yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely really excited for other people, not Marlon, to see how fucking good he is. Because um, like there's been this kind of consensus about Southampton this window that they're trying to go on one of these sort of like Red Bull models in terms of they're spending quite heavily on really young players. So they've signed like basically five Gavin Bazunas in that players with very little senior experience for decent fees of kind of 12 to 15 million. They spent something like 60 million on players with like 40 senior appearances. That, could, that doesn't sound right. And yeah, they spent, they spent 60 million on a couple of players that barely played senior football and Gavin's one of them. Um, but we know from watching with the national team that just because he's only played at a league one level and a league of Ireland level doesn't mean he's not fucking brilliant. So I'm really excited for him to show everyone just how good he is. But I think you're right, Kev. I think there's, there is a bit of a worry around Southampton. Not that this is the be-all and end-all, but Hasenhutl's been floating around the top of the market for next manager sacked for about a year now. It feels like that is a really unsettled yeah. situation in a club that maybe thinks it's smarter than it is or is trying to do things it can't quite pull off. I'm not entirely sure. Um, they're really shy on goals. Um, like you said, he's going to be busy enough, I think. I think they're going to be right in the teeth of a scrap. I read somewhere... Today that they were the I think is it I don't know is a calendar year twenty twenty two they're the second worst Premier League team, uh, only Watford had fewer points something like it, um like it's it's not a great situation overall uh, like you I think he's going to stand up and be counted for, um but when he signed I initially thought oh great established Premier League team he's going to have a really good chance to show everyone what he's about, and like you I, I he might be under a slightly shaky ground, uh, on in less of a stable situation than I than the impression of Southampton I have in my head. Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't be overly as concerned as, as both the year. I mean, I think even if Hassan Tuchel does go, I, I can't see any new manager coming in and looking at McCarthy, Caballero and Bazunu and thinking Bazunu is not my number one here to get me out of the complete dog shit of a mess that we're in. Um, so um, while... It's a more concerning situation overall in terms of he mightn't be part of this established Premier League team, like say like Collins, like we were just talking about, for example, will be at Wolves. Uh, I think he's got to be one of the most naturally talented and athletic footballers we've had. You, you know, going back to you know Kerr's kids, really, in, in terms of just that. There is no ceiling for Bazuna. With every other Irish player who's come through in the past 10 or 15 years, you kind of felt, right, there's there's a certain level they'll reach and, and they won't go above that. Um, whereas I think with Bazuna, 
every single time he plays, he just seems to look better and better and better. And, and you know, the type of performances he was pulling off in Portugal, uh, what he was doing at Portsmouth during the season, um, and some of the saves he's made for Ireland already. I mean, they're just incredible. His reflexes, um, his presence, uh, every single thing he does as a goalkeeper, it's, it would be a manager's dream, really. Um, and I think Southampton, considering you know the concerns they should have going into the new season, and I, I watched uh, one of their preseason games in in Austria, and it was it was a horrific slog, really. Um, they drew nil all, but um, they were absolutely toilet in terms of <laughs> trying to create anything. Um, uh, and I like you know they've um, they've just not really improved in, in in the front areas to the level that they needed to. So I think you know scoring goals would be a, a huge issue for them. But uh, when it comes to kind of Bazunu and, and what he needs right now, it's probably is to be part of a, a busy Premier League team, so everybody can see just you know, how good he is and, and how good he's going to become because I still don't think there's a general realisation out there of um, what a good player he is and what a good player he's going to be. And, and I think that that's all about to change this season. So I, I'm really looking forward to it overall, even if, you know, you do have concerns that he's potentially in a, in a, in a championship battle. I, I don't think, you know, that'll damage his career going forward. Um, I just think he's too young and too good for that to have a, um, a detrimental effect both for, you know, his his um, club and international career. So uh, I think it's it's going to be great to see him playing every week in the Premier League. And I think that's the most important thing for Bazuna at the moment. The other Irish starter on the move then this summer, and, and, and this transfer, it took a while to win me round, um, was Josh Cullen moving from Anderlecht to Burnley. A lot less exotic. Um, you know, he was this kind of, you know, not that the the Belgian uh, league is 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 too advanced compared to the championship. It's probably inferior inferior in many ways, but it did feel like uh, we had this kind of exotic player on the continent who was uh, you know playing ball and 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 you know strutting his stuff and coming into the Irish team uh, as this kind of this fancy uh, tie that we had to play with. But after his performance at the weekend, and considering how good he was and. I mean, he's obviously impressed Vincent Company enough um, for him to bring him to Burnley. And what was it, two or three million? It's a ridiculous fee for a 26-year-old midfielder capable of doing what he's doing. But he does feel like a perennial 7, 8 out of 10 in the championship. Show everyone what he's about. He's at a high enough level that he's... I mean, I know Burnley have, have had a mass exodus, but hopefully they'll be in the top end of, of the championship, you know, in playoff uh, or, or even higher up in terms of uh, promotion chasing. But, I mean, it's not Anderlecht, but it's Burnley. And he's at a level now where I think he can probably not only show, you know, the English um, viewers what he's about, but also show maybe even West Ham in the Premier League that, you know, this guy is a bit of a baller and, you know, he, he he's doing it at an international level. He's probably the first name on, on the Irish team sheet and, and he, he, he got, he got a, a pretty relatively small transfer to, to Burnley and, and I mean look what you're missing out on a guy who's able to string passes together and you know dictate games and, and dictate the tempo of the ball um, so it, it should hopefully come a season to end be a, be a pretty good move for, for Cullen as well Yeah like in an on-pitch sense I like the fact that he impressed his old manager enough that he got brought along and that's always a good sign if a manager thinks he, that you're important enough to take him with you and um, doesn't hurt the fact that it's Vincent Company who because of his profile, 
should probably still be in the mix for jobs for a long time to come. And if he does build up that trust with Cullen, it could be a nice little link up from kind of a Neil Warnock, Paddy Kenny style deal, only for maybe slightly more progressive thinking manager. The only thing that kind of pulls me back a little bit is the situation Burnley are in off pitch. And I know you mentioned their clear out, but um, it, they don't strike me as definitely the type of team who'll bounce right back up. Um, they don't strike me as like a Watford or a Fulham. They're maybe closer to a Huddersfield who might have might be mired down there a little while. Not that it's a bad thing for Cullen, but just that he, he mightn't have a direct path to the Premier League with them. He might be kind of in the championship for a while. And that could be fine because it might ultimately be where, where he's supposed to be. I, I, I agree with you. I think in, in, the lar- in the large part, it's no harm for him to, to be closer to home, show him what he can do, maybe impress uh, a couple of other people. But most importantly, I think, is that he remains a key cog in a team plays all the time and turns up to the Irish games in a good rhythm because since he's been doing that, he's been, as you've said, probably our most important player, probably our hardest player to replace as well. We have a real lack of depth in that position and um, he'll definitely get a good test and an examination in the championship, that's for sure. Um, And it might help him kind of develop even further a little few other pieces of his game that maybe weren't getting stress tested quite as much as uh, as they would have been in Belgium. So I think overall it's a really good move. I think the only watch out is that Burnley maybe at the minute just aren't in the healthiest of positions and the longer term or medium term future of it might be the championship rather than yo-yo between Premier League and Championship. But ultimately, once he has his manager's confidence and uh, he's, he's able to keep up a regular uh, rhythm and tempo of games, I think it's going to be a good thing for him and for Ireland. On the news front then, lads, it was confirmed earlier today that the Champions League will have, for the first time, this semi-automated offside rule or this kind of this new um, technology in place. And I'm not sure if you've seen the um, the football with the kind of cutout to kind of show the, the little piece of uh, technology inside where you can kind of keep track of where the ball is at. Um, to be honest, and and, and then I don't want to bring up old uh, old wounds with this but the first thing I thought of was Hawkeye shitting the bed between Galway and Derry a few weeks back <laughs> in huh. the football championship uh-huh. and I was looking at this and I'm thinking if this isn't calibrated right and it's a big game in the Champions League and it goes to VAR and the line is all arseways or something this could very easily and, and I'm sure they've done their due, due, due diligence with uh, with testing it and whatnot but it does, it does seem a little bit f- you know, you know, it, could that little thing break in the ball or something? Could something yeah. go wrong? It visually looks horrific. Uh, do you remember mm-hmm. Sky in the late nineties? They used to the, they used to have the play, and then they would turn it into like this three D look, so you could see a different angle of the goal or whatever. And it was just like this computer generated simulator thing that was like cool in the late nineties. But if you see the tests that are being shown of this thing, it basically turns the players into mannequins, has a line drawn from like the shoulder or the foot or the edge of the knee. Um, and, you know, it's it tries to come up with this kind of formula where it links all these red dots together and, and you know, where the ball is, where the, where the players, and it just, ah, it just looks dreadful. Um, and unfortunately we've had, you know, not just obviously here in GAA with, with the, our own VR issues. I mean, you look at the, uh, the goal line technology that, you know, um, <laughs> could have relegated Aston Villa, but instead kept them up. And you know, as much as I, I love technology, and I've initially I was all for VAR. I think the offside has been the biggest issue uh, to date. 
and I still don't think this is the way to fix that. Uh, I've always kind of, you know, beaten the drum of there needs to be some sort of, you know, time limit. And if they can't decide within, say, 10 to 15 seconds, then you stick with the original on-field decision, you know, not move lines one millimetre to the other. This is almost the complete opposite of that in terms of they're trying to get it exactly to the millimetre, exactly right. How long will this system take? Uh, I've no idea. And then does somebody, does the system decide automatically that somebody's offside? I, I assume so. So do you have anybody working the controls at all anymore? Is VR just used for penalties or, you know, handballs or whatever? Like it's just, it just raises more questions than, than answers for me. And, and I think what we needed VAR to do initially was to just get rid of the really, really bad decisions. And it's become something much bigger and much more annoying than that. And it's ruined the, the whole experience of watching a football match. And I don't think this will make it any, any more interesting to watch, certainly for people in the stadium and, or for managers not to be annoyed or, you know, will we still have to listen to Peter Walton talking absolute bollocks on BT Sport as the lines oh, are, truck. you know, drawn up and down this thing. I've no idea, but my initial thoughts were, well, this isn't it. I don't know what the answer is, but you know, this, this doesn't seem to be enhancing the experience overall uh, and it's almost too reliant on the technology which is which is also a dangerous precedent to set as well because you know human error is part of sport and even with VAR we still get human error and I'm overall I'm okay with that uh, whereas this is trying to almost perfect the art of getting every decision right and sport will never be like that so uh, it's it's uh, it's an interesting one but I'm not overly looking forward to seeing how it plays out. It's going to drive the conspiracy theorists fucking mad, right? Like, this is going to be prime conspiracy theory um, uh, territory now with, like, you know, they did something to the ball, you know, they did something to the computer, the computer's off. Like, there's going to be, like, you know those uh, those freeze-frame screenshots people put up to prove beyond conclusive proof that the current virus situation is a total sham? It's going to be multiplied by a thousand. Like, this is going to drive the discourse crazy. It's going to be terrible. Um, and like you said about Hawkeye Kev, like I was I was in the stadium for um the the day that it malfunctioned in the, the All Ireland semi final, and for the the point that that drew the real attention, um Shane Walsh kicked the point for Galway, and I saw it go over, and I was like, oh, that's a point, and then it came up as Hawkeye that was wide, and I trusted the machine over my own two eyes, which had seen it go over, <laughs> um so. <laughs> I think we're also going to just slowly, like you know, distrust our lying eyes and let machines kind of, you know, decide for us what isn't isn't happening. Yeah. Uh, like I literally saw it go over, and when they when they told me it was wide, I was like, oh, okay, it's wide, it's fine. So, um, so I'm looking forward to a uh, kind of a battle of wills between ourselves and the sentient machines uh, to try to tell me that most Salah's offside, um, and see how far they get with it. But I I just think it's going to drive the discourse to a whole another level. And uh, the people who talk about, you know, Anthony Taylor being from Greater Manchester and Mike Dean's sons having season tickets on the cop, uh, it's only going to get worse now with, like, you know, who programmed the computer and who has their hands uh, <laughs> over the joystick and stuff like that. So uh, I'm not looking forward to what the nuttier elements of football Twitter are going to do with it. Yeah, and it's like, it's where is sport? A remote control. <laughs> yeah, like Father Ted, like you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like where where is sport heading with technology? Because we had kind of almost a system that worked well, really, kind of more of the rugby NFL kind of. It just seemed to flow really well, uh, and then now we're heading down this path in tennis, for example, which you know they have Hawkeye Live, which is means there's no umpires anymore. There's just a machine that calls the ball in or out, and a lot of players have already had issues with this. They're saying you know the machine called the ball out, they saw it land on the line, but you know. 
there's nothing you can do the machine said it's out that's it whereas at least with the current version of, of hawkeye and tennis you know somebody calls it in or out and then they go to the big screen you've only three challenges so there's a bit of a balance there again again in cricket we've seen you know they, they tried to have like stick to the umpire's decision if the ball is just clipping the bail but you know you have this tracker which can't fully decide how much the ball was spinning and it it all becomes this big clusterfuck as to whether the technology helps or almost you know uh you know it's does more damage overall listen it's it creates a lot of debate which is what sport is about as well and that's fine but um i think once you start becoming too reliant on the technology which football never was at all. It was like so stubborn and so, no, listen, referee, linesman, that's the way it is. You've enough to argue about over that. Uh, and we've seen enough problems with technology and football alone in the last few years uh, to suggest that it's not ironclad and, and you know, that it, it shouldn't go this way of being something that should be completely relied upon, which is what this thing basically is becoming. Mm. Um, and you kind of, you know, not to get too philosophical or deep about it, but it, you would worry for sport overall if that's the way it's heading because human error and kind of having having individuals making decisions, whether you like them or not, is still an important part of sport. And once that's gone, it kind of becomes a bit more kind of difficult to to watch um, as a spectacle. Uh, so I'm, I'm not overly enthused at all about it. Just to finish up on a lighter note, lads, and I'm sure you've seen the clips at this point. And when I first saw it, it was on some generic Arsenal account, and I was like, "This is this has to have been doctored. This this cannot be real." And then I found it on on the official Amazon Prime account was Mikel Arteta basically setting up a training session with a backdrop of "You'll Never Walk Alone" on these kind of loudspeakers around the training ground. And I mean, it, it's a tactic that's been done for for decades. I know it's it's pretty common in U.S. sport. Um, or on the NFL, they'll, they'll blaze sound and, and loud music as they're as they're trying to train. Um, I think it's been done in rugby as well. Even in in Ireland, I think uh, Declan Kidney did something similar for Munster years back. But I mean, I've never seen it look so naff as this clip with Arteta, and you'll never walk alone. I mean, you know, fair enough. You want to try and replicate the, the Anfield sound, but it's, it's more than you'll never walk alone, which stops before the game even kicks off. It, it just looks so bizarre. And what made it worse was was uh, was the, the the coach with him, you know, kind of saying, oh, this is a great idea, well done. Um, and then obviously, um, hopefully we'll see it in the documentaries, they went on to lose that game 4-0, uh, which uh, <laughs> it just all felt so, I don't know, so bizarre and, and kind of like, you know, is this what Arsenal are getting up to? Is this kind of little, you know, side tricks to try and big them up? But uh, no, I had a good laugh at that. This documentary is going to make it so fucking hard for me to stand over my idea that they'll finish fourth. Jesus Christ, it's going to be terrible. Like, the more you see of them, the more you wonder, uh, is Enda entirely right and is he full of shite and gets good press because he's with <laughs> Gretiola for a couple of years? Like, to your point, Kev, my biggest issue with the whole thing was that song is sung before the game kicks off and at the end if Liverpool win. That's when that <laughs> song is sung. If you want to prepare them for what it's going to be like during the game, that's not what you play. That's what you prepare them for when they've got beaten 4-0 and Liverpool, start, Liverpool fans start to sing it on 80 minutes when they know they're going to win the match. Um, like So his, while his premise isn't absolutely wild... Um, I would rather him, if I was an Arsenal player or a fan, spend a bit more time trying to figure out how to beat Liverpool's fucking press than, like, you know, playing the Diogo Jota chant or whatever else he had up his sleeve. Um, like, I don't know, it just, it's one of those things, I think, 
and you see it with you've seen it with football documentaries since being Liverpool. You just open yourselves up to so much retrospective ridicule. And I know you can't know going in ahead of time how things are going to go, but things that would have looked like absolute genius if you were if they work out look make you look like such a tit when they don't. Like so they they bet Spurs three one in the North London Derby and he got the cameraman to give them that's another clip that's doing the rounds. The cameraman gave the pre match speech. And if they'd have lost that three nil, then you've got the cameraman talking to your elite players before they, they go out and play their biggest rivals in the massive Champions League playoff, basically. Um so like I think it's 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 a fallacy, I think, of the documentary itself that like you're setting yourself up for a fall unless you're Manchester City and you win the league. And even then they get knocked out of the Champions League. So like I don't know. I just think that if you try something, you better be fucking sure it's gonna work if you're gonna commit it to film. And as you said, losing four 0 and playing a song um that wasn't actually even relevant. Uh I like I, I just, <laughs> I'm running out of stuff to say about him. I don't know. Every time they I'm high on Arsenal, Arteta brings me back down to reality. It has to be the most batshit mental preparation for a game I think I've ever heard of. <laughs> like, what a fraudy bollocks. I mean, <laughs> fuck me. Like, this guy. I mean, you look at the abuse Emery got. All right, his hair was greasy and he, he chatted shit too, right? But like, Arteta is off his tits. He is absolutely <laughs> insane. Like... You just, like, as, as Phil said, you don't hear that song during the game. You might as well just have hired a bunch of school kids to stand at the sidelines and talk shit about your mum. That's how you prepare for a game if you want to create the atmosphere or something. Have them throw cigarette butts at your, you know, insult you at a corner flag or something. What the hell was he thinking? And then his, his little assistant going like full, you know, Phil Neal and Graham Taylor. That's a great idea, you know. I don't know if you remember that documentary. Um... So he obviously has a bunch of yes men around him as well, and it's just like Jesus Christ. I hope, I hope for Arteta's sake, he he watches the documentary. Just like yeah, Jesus, that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> and there's a couple of other clips knocking around as well. Another where he's writing stuff on the board, and they're all just looking at him, thinking, "Fucking hell." Um, so <laughs> that aside, I actually do like a lot of what they've done in preseason, and they played really well. And I think their signings are great, but I still can't look past that absolute prick. Uh, just for just for handing Pep water bottles for two years, he suddenly, you know, this football managerial genius. You know, I, I just, I just don't get it at all. I don't mind the guy as a person, but you know, <laughs> talk talk about you know fast track into management just because you know. Let's face it, you're a good looking bloke. Uh, but um, you know, I don't want to open up my feelings too much on the guy, so uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's early. It's early days, but I think uh, it'll it, <laughs> we'll be doing well to top that moment uh, on the podcast uh, over the course of the season. Um, I think we'll leave it there, lads. Any any other spicy hot takes before uh, before we sign off? Uh, two to walk before the World Cup. Ooh, Ooh. I was going to say Stephen Gerrard gone by Christmas. Ooh, I like two shot. Uh, Frank gone before bonfire night. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I, I can believe all three of those calls, but uh, I think we'll leave it there. Um, some administration before we sign off. If you haven't subscribed, uh, please do so. Give it a like, give it a, a thumbs up, or a five stars, or whatever um, your podcast app is asking you to do. We'll hopefully have an episode every Thursday morning 
straight into your ears over the course of the season, um, covering a little bit of Premier League, a little bit of Irish football uh, and all the other good stuff. Um, but it's good to be back, lads. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thanks, lads. Great to be back. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>